Uh, go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, Luke 22. Uh, you know that we are beginning a new series that I'm calling Road to the Cross. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for uh, these weeks leading up to Easter Sunday. And um, what we're going to be doing specifically is really looking at the last two days of Jesus' life. And, and really just looking at how he embraced uh, the Father's will for him. How he, he really really just accepted uh, the road to the cross and, and, and just chose that. And in some, so many instances, really just pushed the envelope to go to the cross. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And, you know, if you went downtown Indianapolis and you just were walking on the streets and you just asked random people, uh, why did Jesus come to the earth? Uh, you would probably get a variety of different answers. You know, some people would say that, you know, Jesus came to be a moral example to us. You know, he, he came to be a good teacher, to teach us the way to God, to, to kind of give us the golden rule, in other words. Uh, some people would say that, you know, Jesus came to show us the way to God. Uh, some people would say that he came to take care of the poor and the disenfranchised. And he certainly did all of those things. But those are not, those are not the reason why he came. You see, Jesus came to die. He knew he was going to the cross from the very beginning. He knew that that was, that was the will of the Father, and he accepted that and embraced that. And um, he knew that what he would do on the cross is save us sinners. He knew that um, he would defeat the works of the devil. And that's, that's why Easter is such a big deal, because Easter is really the culmination of that. It's the confirmation that that reality has occurred. And that's why our hearts need to be prepared for Easter. And so we're going to be looking at these, these different, different events in the life of Jesus uh, leading up to the cross. And, and that's really what this series is going to be about. Now, before we read the passage today that we're going to look at, I want to give you a little bit of context. I want to kind of set it up so that you understand the undercurrent that's flowing underneath the story that we're reading. And part of that undercurrent is this. The, the Jews, the religious leaders, what they call the Pharisees, uh, the teachers of the law, they believed that Jesus was a clear and present danger to Judaism. They were concerned that if Jesus continued, he would absolutely turn Israel inside out with, with his teaching and with his actions. And what you see in the Gospels, and you know, in all four of the Gospels, you see, you know, you see Jesus doing this. You see him consistently creating conflict with the Jewish religious leaders because of his healing people on the Sabbath. And so they saw him, the, the Jewish religious leaders saw Jesus as a lawbreaker because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But not only that, you see these instances where Jesus is interacting with people and he's forgiving their sins. And the Jewish religious leaders saw that as blasphemy. And not only that, but you see Jesus predicting the absolute destruction of Jerusalem and especially the temple. And if you know anything about Jesus' predictions, they came true in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. They left no stone unturned. And so what Jesus had predicted absolutely came true. So for all of these reasons, the Jews just felt like they couldn't just let him go. And they began plotting to arrest him and plotting a way to kill him. Now, the other interesting kind of sideline note of what's really happening here is Judas is one of the disciples and he was the disciple that would betray Jesus. 
Judas really had no understanding of what Jesus really was coming to do. He thought that Jesus was, you know, really ushering in a political revolution, that he would organize and lead an overthrow of the Roman occupation in Jerusalem. And so what Judas wanted to do was get things moving along. And he thought he would force the issue by betraying Jesus into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders wanted to arrest him, but they were very worried about the crowds because obviously Jesus was very popular among the crowds. So they wanted to find a way to do it at night under the cover of darkness, and Judas provided a way for them to do it. He just wanted something in return. And so he asked uh, for 30 pieces of silver, which is what they gave him. So all of that is, is really against the backdrop for what we're about to read. And so the story, that the, the, the event that we're going to look at today is really the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. It's the Passover meal. And what we're going to see is Jesus completely redefines it. And so we're going to read verses 7 through 23. I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word today. So Luke records this. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus, went, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which, which of them it could be who is going to do this. This is, this is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Have you ever thought about how important meals are in life? Some of you are thinking about it right now, quite honestly, as we're pretty close to the lunch hour. Yeah, meals are really integral part of our life. Uh, you think about all that we do over a meal. You know, we build friendships over a meal. We, you know, we conduct business, how we have business luncheons or business meals. We certainly romance uh, over dinner and, and dinner and a meal. So meals are really integral to who we are, they're integral to a part of our life. 
uh, meals certainly have a positive connotation. If I were to extend to you an invitation to come to our house, we're having a backyard barbecue, you'd be pretty amped up about that. You know, if I told you we're grilling steaks on the barbie, you'd be like, hey, count me in. You know, if I told you, hey, we're going to the big game, you know, on Friday night, come tailgate with us, you'd probably be all about that. And the reason why is because meals are huge. They're big. And when you think about all the important events in your life that are marked by a meal. I mean, anniversaries, you know, birthdays. Think about holidays or holy days, right? Christmas, you know, you got Christmas dinner or Easter dinner, uh, Thanksgiving dinner, certainly. And so meals are a huge part of our life. And so it shouldn't really be a surprise that as Jesus is contemplating his departure from the disciples, that he is going to, he's going to leave them with something that's going to sustain them in his absence from them. And what he gifts them with is he gifts them with a meal. He gifts them with the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, if you will. Now, I don't know if you've really thought about how universal the Lord's Supper is, but it is the most participated in meal in the history of the world. I mean, for 2,000 years, believers have come together to receive the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do in a few minutes. But just think about it. In every continent, in every place on the globe, the Lord's Supper has been celebrated. You know, you think about, you know, the third world huts in Haiti to, you know, the villages in Africa to an igloo and, you know, in Antarctica to... Um, you know, islands in the Pacific to urban areas and, you know, rural areas here in Indiana. I mean, everywhere you go, this meal has been celebrated. And it's just fascinating to me when you think about it. it it's a meal that transcends culture. It transcends language. It transcends ethnicity. It transcends the continents. It, it transcends all of our you know, our gender differences and economic differences, it transcends all of that and actually unites us as a humanity before, before God. And I think really the question is, you know, who is this meal for? Who is it really for? And then what does this meal really mean? You know, I think it's easy to come in here on a Sunday and, you know, we're tired, we're exhausted, we've had a busy week. And it's just easy just to kind of maybe coast, just to kind of check out mentally and on our heart, in our hearts as well. We just kind of go through the motions. But what is this meal really for? It's certainly not something you go through the motions on, I can tell you that. Here's what I want to do. I just want to share with you four answers to that question. You know, who is this meal for? It's it's for the foul, it's for the found, it's for the family, and it's for the future. All right, so let's look at it. It's, for, it's a meal for the found. Go back and look at verse 21, and let me, show you, let me show you this, this meal for the foul. Notice who is at the table. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. You see, this is not a meal for the righteous, for the pure, for the pristine. This is a meal for the foul. It is, it is for the unworthy and for the impure. This is a meal that's for the weak and the wounded. It's for the sick and the sore. It's for the bruised and the battered. In other words, it's for you and me. 
It really is. You know, Jesus told, Jesus told this parable about this host that wanted to have a wedding banquet at his house. And he told his servants, he was a man of great affluence. So he told his servants, he said, I, I, I want you to invite all of the, the upper crust in our city, all of the, you know, all of the muckety mucks that, you know, that the, all of the haves in other words. And I want you to invite them to this wedding feast that I'm having. So, so they send out these invitations and they get a, they really get a, a negative response. None of them will show up. None of them, they, they've got too many things going on. They're too busy. And so the servants bring this news to the host and the host kind of changes course. And he says to his servants, go out into the city and I want you to invite all of the have nots. I want you to invite the homeless. I want you to invite the poor. I want you to invite the throwaways of society. Don't invite the A list. Don't even invite the B list. Invite everybody on the C list. And then they start streaming in. Now, can you imagine as they're coming into this wedding feast, how wide-eyed they are? Can you imagine the feeling that they are experiencing as they're coming into a wedding feast? You know why they're experiencing, you know, wide-eyed feelings? Because they don't get invited to things like this. Because they're not on the inside track. They don't deserve to be invited. They've done nothing to be invited. You see, the only qualification for eating this meal that Jesus is establishing is that you have no qualifications at all. That's the only qualification. And certainly they, they filled that billing. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, Hollywood hosted the Oscars. I don't know if you watch that, if you're into that stuff, but I guarantee you none of us were there. You know what I mean? Like none of us were there. None of us went to the Oscars. We didn't go to the Hollywood parties after the Oscars. None of us went there. You know why? Because we're not on those lists. We're just Hoosiers. We don't get invited to Hollywood Oscar parties. You know what I'm saying? That's how it felt like for these, for these folks. You see, it's, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like the words of that old hymn. You know, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. You see, we come to the table today, we come completely empty-handed. We bring nothing with us, church. We're empty, we're hungry, we're poor, and we're foul. And that's who this meal is for. And that is the meal that Jesus is establishing. This is what he means when he says, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Now, some of you are pushing back because you're like, now, Scott, how do you know this? Well, the reason why I know that this is a meal for the foul, simply because just look at who's sitting around the table with Jesus. I mean, just consider that for a moment. Imagine showing up at a meal where you're responsible for killing the host. Imagine showing up at a meal where, it, you know, it's your fault that the host has been murdered. Imagine showing up at a meal with a family where you killed the firstborn son. You think you'd enter into that meal, you know, uh, jovial and, and excited and proud of your achievements and accomplishments? No, I think, you'd, I think you'd be pretty solemn. You see, it's a, I, I think you would, you would enter in weak and wounded. And what's fascinating about what Luke tells us is Luke tells us Judas was at the table. He was sharing the meal with Jesus. The one who would betray Jesus into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders and then they would turn him over to, to Pontius Pilate. The very one who caused all of those chain events was reclining at the table and sharing 
in this, in this meal with them. Now, here's the interesting thing, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but it is the truth. Do you realize they all would betray Jesus that night? They all would. Not just Judas. Judas was the tip of the spear. He kind of busted open the front door, but they all followed him in. And what you see in the story of the Gospels is, you know, the disciples, all of the disciples received from Jesus. They were, you know, they benefited from his love and friendship. They, they, they grew from his teaching and his training. They, they were blessed because of his sacrifice. But when he needed them the most, they were, they were gone. They were done. And why? To save their own skin. To absolutely save their own skin. And that's what they did. And so the scripture also tells us, Luke tells us that Jesus even shared with a couple of the disciples, you know, that the betrayer was here. And they all, you know, the other gospels tell us they all reacted. Surely, surely not I. Surely it couldn't be me. And I think we read through that and we don't realize how arrogant that statement really is because really what it is is a comparison. It's a judgment where they're comparing themselves to the others and saying, uh, I'm not as bad as those guys. Couldn't be me. And so they say, it's not I. It's, it's, so, it's blind arrogance. But what you have here is you really have a picture of the gospel that God loves us even in our blind, sinful arrogance, even when we can't even see the sinfulness in our own life, Jesus extends to us the blessing of this meal. I think it's a picture of the gospel. You know, there's a, there's a novel uh, titled um, Christ Recrucified. And there's a, there's a scene in this, in this novel, there's a scene in the story where these four guys are confessing their sins one to another. And they're doing it in front of the Pope. And one of the guys that's confessing his sin is just weighted down by the things that he's done. And he's just, he's just, he's just wondering why in the world God allows him to live. And he asks the Pope, why doesn't God just wipe me off the face of the earth to cleanse the earth from the impurity that is me? And the Pope looks at him and says, you know what? God is the potter and he works with the mud. That's why. You know what the truth about this last meal is? There's a lot of mud around the table. You know the truth about the meal you and I are about to participate in is? There's an awful lot of mud around the table. And I love what Tim Keller says. He says, we're more sinful than we ever dared to believe, yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that it firsthand? That he, that he knows us inside and out. He knows our secret thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows, he knows everything about us. He knows, he knows our sin. And yet he loves us anyway. You see, this is a meal for the foul. But it's not only a meal for the foul. It is a meal for the found. Look at verse 14. Notice how Luke writes this. He says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. 
And so what Jesus is really commenting on is the fact that he's, he realizes these, these foul guys that are at sharing this meal with him are one day going to be the apostles. They're going to be the future leaders of the church. And, and, and so they're found. They were foul, but they're found. And it reminds me of the, the great line of that hymn, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, saved a heck of a guy like me. Is that how that goes? You guys get that heck of a guy like me? No, it doesn't go like that, does it? No, it goes amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. This is a meal for the found. That's what this is for. And you know what? The truth is we should be walking into this banquet today wide-eyed that you and I are counted among the rescued and the redeemed. You and I should have our mind blown that we get to participate in this meal, that we get to sit at this table and share in the grace of God that is offered up to us as a buffet. You know, I don't know if you remember 10 years ago, but you remember the U.S. air flight that was taking off from LaGuardia? It's about, I think it was about 10 years ago. Um, Captain Sullenberger, they, I think they made a movie called Sully about it. And, and so they're taking off from LaGuardia and they hit a flock of geese on their way up. And the plane just goes into a tailspin. And really because of the, the skill and the experience of uh, Captain Sullenberger, he was able to land the plane in the Hudson River and no one died. Not one person died. And so he was counted as a hero and, you know, just, just an incredible story. It's a miracle, really. Because I don't know if you guys realize this, but when a plane crashes, people die. You guys know that? I like when, I mean, rarely does it ever happen where everybody lives. Well, it did on this day. Now, just imagine you're one of the passengers on that flight. Just imagine you've lived through that ordeal that day. You're standing on the wing as the boats are coming to get you, and you're completely unscathed. Imagine that's you. And then you go home and you tell all your friends and family about the story and then it's time to go to bed. Do you think your head's gonna hit the pillow and just fall right to sleep that night? You think you're gonna do that? No, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna lay in bed most of the night staring at the ceiling wondering why in the world am I, was I rescued from that? People always die in a plane crash. Why me? Why, why do I get to live? And I think it's that same Same kind of perspective that when we come to the Lord's Supper, it is so easy to just check out and go through the motions of eating the piece of unleavened bread and the cup of juice. When we really don't consider the miracle that it is that we are living, that we are alive, that we are recipients of God's grace. Church, it should have been us that went down that day, not Jesus. And we should come in here wide-eyed at that. And I think part of the problem is we, we just... We forget the cost. We forget what it, you know, we don't even consider the cost of the heavenly father to have us seated at his table. We don't even think about it. You know, I was reading about, I just got on Google and I was Googling, you know, political fundraisers and, um, and how much, you know, what, what's the most expensive political fundraiser in history. I, I really couldn't find it, uh, but I found I found a pretty expensive one. In 2016, um, you could have, you could sit 
at that head table with Bill and Hillary Clinton and George Clooney for $353,000 a plate. Man, that's some expensive grilled chicken right there, man. $353,000. Sit at the table with them. That is amazing. You know, the truth is, the truth is this, that's nothing compared to the, that the price that the father paid so that your sins and mine could be forgiven. I mean, he gave up what was most precious to him. You, you can't even put a price tag on that. And that's what he did. He gave it up for you and for me. You know, for us to really understand the cost, I think we have to understand Passover a little bit. We have to understand this Jewish feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and I realize, you know, most of us really, you know, don't know our Old Testament that well. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about the Jewish Passover. Passover is uh, in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. You should go home and uh, read about that storyline, what happened in Exodus. But um, really pretty amazing story. You know, the Israelites are enslaved to the Egyptians for 430 years. And so God raises up Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to lead my people out. It's time, it's time. I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And he goes, and you know that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And God sends a series of plagues to start softening up Pharaoh. And finally, God kind of gets to the end of that and says, you know what? I'm going to send the death angel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send the death angel at night. And this death angel is going to bring the wrath of God on the Egyptians and on the Israelites. Now, why both of them? Well, because sin is sin. That's why, whether you're an Egyptian or you're an Israelite, sin is sin. And so this death angel is going to pour out the wrath of God on the people in the cover of darkness. And so God told the people, he said, you know what? There's one way out. There's one way you can escape this. And that's by being under the blood. You take a lamb, you cut its throat. You take the blood and you wipe it on the doorpost of your house. And if you have blood on the doorframe of your house, when the death angel comes that night and he sees the blood, when he sees that you and your family are under the blood, he will pass over that house and spare it from judgment. Well, that was an obvious turning point in the history of the people of Israel because you know, not long after that, that uh, Pharaoh you know, decided to let, it, to let the people go. And then not long after that, they were delivered miraculously at the Red Sea. It's, it's the highest moment in Israeli history. And they celebrate this as a Passover meal on a regular basis. And so Jesus gathers with his disciples to celebrate this very same Passover meal. But what he does is he rewrites the script. He changes the script because normally, you know, what you would do, you know, back in Jesus' day, you would go to the temple and you would buy a lamb from the temple and the priest would take that lamb and cut its throat and collect the blood. And then he would take the blood and offer it as a sacrifice on the fires of the altar. And then you would take that lamb, throw it over your shoulder and head on home and begin to roast it on the spit. And you would include into this Seder Passover meal, you would include crushed fruit and unleavened bread and bitter wine as a reminder of the suffering and the bitterness that God's people went through while they were 430 years enslaved to the Egyptians. 
And so what you see is Jesus completely just changing this and rewriting the script because what the father would do in his family is the leader of his family, he would lead the people in the retelling of the story right from Exodus. And so the father would take the unleavened bread and he would break it and he would say, this is a, this is a reminder. This bread commemorates the suffering of the people in Egypt. And you know what Jesus did? He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is a reminder of the suffering that I will go through for the people. And the father would lift up the bitter cup of wine and he would hold it up and he would say, this is the cup of the tears of our people that they cried, you know, in the wilderness of Egypt for so many years. And then they would drink it. And Jesus would take the cup of wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the people. And so what you have is Jesus completely rewriting this script. And what's fascinating is, is the most prominent piece of the Passover Seder meal is the lamb roasted over the spit. And what's fascinating particularly about this and then the other three accounts in the other gospels is none of them mention the presence of the lamb. None of them mention it. In other words, at this Passover meal that Jesus is instituting with the disciples, the lamb is not on the table. Church, the lamb is at the table. Just like Jesus, when he saw, just like John, when he saw Jesus for the first time, he said what? Behold the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb. That's why the script is getting rewritten. You know what it means? It means God the Father loves you. That's what it means. That he would give up what is most precious to him for you and for me. That's why he says, and you know, in verse 16, uh, he says this, he says, I've, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That word earnestly desired, it is the highest desire you could have. That's how much he loves his disciples. That's how much he loves you and me. Church, you have no idea how much God loves you. He knows you backward and forward. He knows you inside and out. And yet your sin and my sin doesn't scare him. Doesn't scare him off. He loves you. And so it's a meal for the foul. It's a meal for the found. Thirdly, it is a meal for the family. This is a family meal that we're going to receive in just a few minutes. It's not really a meal for individuals. It's really not. It's, it's, it's given in a family context. You know, part of the Passover regulations required that the entire lamb be consumed, that the entire lamb be eaten. And so one person couldn't do that. You needed, you know, you needed the elderly in your family. You needed all the kids. You needed all the brothers and sisters there. You needed everybody there to, to consume the meal. See, it's a family meal. And that's what Jesus is instituting here. And I find it interesting because each one of the disciples, you, you may not have realized this, but each one of the disciples had their own individual family. So Jesus is instituting this meal, just he and the disciples. And it's almost like his bold, bold proclamation that I'm creating an entirely new family through this meal. I am creating an entirely new family 
And I think that's what he's talking about here. And I think that's what he's trying to establish. He's, he's from the beginning of time, he's been building a family, hasn't he? And the interesting thing about this family is it's not going to be divided artificially and superficially like we have divisions today in our society. It's not going to be divided by race or gender or economic status or, you know, uh, by education level. It's not, it's, not going to be dis- it's not going to be divided superficially in any of those ways. You know why? Because Jesus' death on the cross brings down the dividing wall of hostility. The things in our life that we erect that separate us one from another, that creates these classifications that there's the pure and the impure and there's the good and the bad and, and the worthy and the unworthy. All of those, all of those go away because the ground is level on the road to the cross and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so this new family that Jesus is creating is characterized by love. It's characterized by humility. It is characterized by just mutual submission and unity. Just like the unity and the love that are characterized in the Godhead, in the Trinity. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That even within God himself, there's relationship and community. And what he wants for his church is the same kind of love to, that, that, to characterize us, that characterizes him. That's what the church is to be. And if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we need to show that love. And I think it's the kind of love that the world on the outside is absolutely thirsty for. You see, you thought just, you know, being a part of the church is just going and showing up on Sunday, Right? No, it's, it's all about love and relationship. Can you imagine your earthly family, you just showing up once a week for an hour to see them and then you're out of there? How would that work? Somebody in your family would call time out. They'd say, hey, uh, we need somebody to do the dishes over here. We need somebody to take the trash out, cut the grass, you know. We play together. We sleep under the same roof. You know, we do life together. That's what church is, church. That's what it's about. And that's what God has called us to be. That's that's what God has called us to do. The church, really what the church is, it is the forever expression of the family of God, of the love of God. Regardless of our differences, regardless of whatever, Jesus' death on the cross seals us together as a family with bonds that are closer than the bonds we have with our earthly families. Imagine that. You see, the blood of Christ establishes that. I was reading about these three little critters behind me on the screen. Um, this was, uh, these guys were found uh, in the possession of a drug dealer in Georgia. They, the police in Georgia arrested this drug dealer, and he had these guys in his possession. That's a lion, uh, a bear, and a tiger. And they were together since they were cubs, all three of them. Now, you you, you couldn't have more ferocious enemies than those three guys right there. I mean, they kind of rule, the, rule the jungle. But these, these guys in particular had been abused and neglected by their drug dealer owner, but somehow they survived it. And so when they went onto his property and they took these guys into their custody, they, they took them to uh, Noah's Ark Animal Shelter in Georgia. It's like a crisis emergency animal shelter. And the veterinarians started working with them. And first, when they, when they took these three in, you know, the lion, the tiger, and the bear, they separated them out because they just assumed they needed to be separated. They probably wouldn't get along. But you know what they found is they were, they were completely agitated. 
They were always in a bad mood and they were mistreating all the other animals they were around. So then they had the bright idea, why don't we just put them back together again? When they put them back together, they immediately started behaving and the agitation level went completely down and they just started playing together and hanging out together. They asked the veterinarian about it and they said, you know, there's something funny about these three in particular. They don't see differences. They don't see color differences. They just love each other. They love being together. Do you know that that's the characteristic of God's family? They really don't see differences. They love differences. And they love one another. That's what the blood of Christ does. Church, that's a message our country really needs to hear. They need to hear that the grace of God makes that happen. And they need to hear it from you and me. As people in our society long for real family and real community. And so that's what this Lord's Supper is really all about. It's about family. And that's what we are, church. That is what we are. All right, one more. This is a meal for the future. It's not just a meal for the fowl and the found and the family. It is a meal that has its eye to the future. And even Jesus, as he's instituting this, kind of gives us some insight into this. You know, you know, this is really, you know, this is a gospel feast that we're about to receive. In the juice and in the bread, it's a feast. And some of you are kind of pushing back and you're like, not much of a feast to me because it's just a little piece of bread and a little cup of grape juice. Well, it really points to a future feast that you and I will be a part of. And that's what Jesus talks, talks about. He alludes to this in verse 16. You would just love for him to explain this a little bit more. You'd love for him to camp on it, but he, he doesn't. He just gives us a little bit of taste. Notice verse 16. Jesus says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I'm not gonna eat this again until the realization, the consummation of the kingdom of God. He says it again in verse 18. You feel like this is important because uh, he repeats it. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes in all of its glory. You know what he's alluding to here? He's alluding to his second coming where Jesus is not coming as a servant. He's not coming as a savior. He's coming as king. And he's going to set his kingdom up on the earth. And he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He, it's going to be, church, what it's going to be for the redeemed and the rescued. It's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb. And the table, the banqueting table at this meal is going to sag because of the amount of fruit and meat and desserts and bread. And you can leave the diet at the door. Trust me on that. You know why? Because sin will be no more. Satan will be no more. Selfishness will be no more. Because God says, I'm making all things new. That if anyone be in Christ, he is new creation. The old has gone and the new has come.
And in the new heaven and new earth, there'll be no more sorrow, no more, no more suffering, no more, no more dying, no more pain, no more fear, no more insecurity, no more worry, no more stress. Just love and dancing and feasting and hanging out and telling stories and getting to know the saints who've lived you know, throughout all of the ages where you and I will sit down and recognize them and know them and converse with them. The day that we've all longed for the justice and the love and the curse being lifted, all of that is going to become real. And we will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And every time you and I receive the Lord's Supper, we proclaim that coming. We proclaim that reality in the new heaven and new earth. And I just think it brings great encouragement. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling, what this meal does is it points us to a grand and glorious future. That eyes haven't seen, ears have not heard, minds haven't even conceived the things that God has in store for us that love him. That's what Paul says. That's just your future. That's just all it is, yep. And it's grand and glorious and every time we share in this meal, we proclaim it. Isn't that good news? You guys excited about that? Anybody awake this morning? I love it. Let me just kind of think about where you could be today. It could be that you're here and you just, I mean, you showed up today because you just, you just know you haven't been on track. You just haven't been doing what you should be doing. You know you've been distant with God. And you feel like God's a million miles away. Can I tell you something, church? He hasn't moved. What sin does is it creates between us and God distance. And the way that that gap gets closed is just through confession. Just through acknowledgement, you know what, I, I've not been doing what I should be doing. In fact, I've been doing a lot of things I shouldn't be doing. And it's just confessing that. It's just owning that. You're not blaming anybody else. You're just saying, okay, this, this is where I'm at. I haven't been where I need to be. But you know what, that's what this meal is for. It's good news because what you find in that is grace and mercy. You find that it's safe to admit that here. Number one, you're not alone because number two, God's willing to forgive. It could be that you're here today and you're just discouraged because life's just beating you up. You know, maybe just circumstances, whether it's financial, whether it's, you know, relational, whether it's just physical. It could be any number of things and you're just kind of, you're just a little you're just disappointed because of the circumstances you're in. And maybe you're disappointed with someone else or maybe you're disappointed with God. Do you know what the Lord's Supper reminds us? It reminds us of that future. It reminds us where he's taking us. It reminds us that, yeah, you know what? Things are hard right now. God's got you. It's gonna be okay. Why? Because God's got you. And all you need to do is trust in him. So it could be that you're in one of those places. It could be you're here today and you're not even a believer. Like you've been coming, you come every Sunday, but you're not a believer. You've not crossed over from death to life. And what I would say to you, dear friend, is today, let today be the day you make that decision to say, you know what? I wanna be a part of the redeemed and the rescued. God's grace is available for you.
What is it that's holding you back? What is it that's preventing you from taking that step? Remove it. And if you feel like, you know, you need God's help, say, God, you remove this. Help my unbelief. And he will show himself mighty to save. So I just want to invite you to just bow your heads and your hearts as we pray together, as we prepare for this this gospel feast. Would you pray with me? God, we just enter in with hearts wide open, with hearts humbled and grateful for the magnificent gift that this meal is and the gift that this meal points to. God, we are amazed at your grace that you would count us among the redeemed, among the rescued. God, forgive us for pulling away from you, from doing what we shouldn't do and not doing what we should do. God, forgive us. We ask for your grace and mercy today. Father, we're here acknowledging that life is hard, but we say in faith, God is good. We confess circumstances that have gotten us down and discouraged, and we just just hand them to you. You're bigger than our circumstances. We trust you. We thank you, God, that you have the very hairs on our head numbered. You care for us. You love us. And thank you most of all, God, that you are mighty to save. That you always hear the heart cry. Lord, that there are those here today that want to receive you as Lord and Savior. They want to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior for the first time. Thank you, God, that you are in the saving business. And so, God, would you do that today? Lord, I pray that as we celebrate this incredible meal, that this bread would be for us your body and this juice would be for us your blood. God, that you would meet us here in this moment. We thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen.